Hello, everyone. Welcome to Thrive with Charlene McRae. What does it feel like and what do you do when your three-year-old, who you've been raising as a girl, says to you one day, Mom, I'm a boy. Today, our guest is Jody Patterson, and she's going to talk about that experience and her journey of individual and family transformation. Jody is a mother of five children, including Penelope. And when Penelope was three, he told his mother, Jody, that he was not a girl, as he'd been assigned at birth. He's a boy. Today, Jody is an activist, an LGBTQ advocate, and she serves as board director for the Human Rights Campaign. She is an entrepreneur and businesswoman, and on top of all of that, she is a wonderful writer. Her book, The Bold World, a memoir on family and transformation came out early this year, and I encourage everyone to check it out. Jody shares a deeply personal story about her, her life and her family that will resonate with anyone who reads it. Jody, welcome to Thrive. Good morning. Jody, you're a lifelong New Yorker. I just want to ask you, what is your favorite place <laughs> in the city to relax outside of your home? Wow. Yes. So I've lived most of my life in New York, born and raised. And there are a few spots that no matter how long it's been between visits, mm -hmm. I just return to and I have that same feeling of joy. I think food is a big source of joy for me. <laughs> and I love Indochine. It's one of my favorite restaurants. I go there depending on the season or the year. It doesn't matter. But Where is it? So it's downtown right across from the public theater. Okay. And I spent a lot of time, I used to spend a lot of time at the public theater. Mm -hmm. um, my ex-husband and I co-own Joe's Pub. So right across the street is a That's place right. called Indochine. Uh -huh. And they have this spicy beef salad. <laughs> that I just, like right now talking about it, it makes me mm -hmm. want to just jump over there <laughs> and eat it. So that, that, that's one of my favorite places. Um, and then I'd have to say for a simple pleasures, I like a stoop, a brownstone stoop. Mm -hmm. And we sit on stoops in Brooklyn. Yes. Um, and that's a good cozy place where you can see folks and your neighbors. Maybe pick up a book and, and do a little reading, a little Absolutely. writing. Yeah. yeah. Could you read a passage from, from your book for us? I would love to. It's one of my favorite things to do. Sign books, <laughs> read from my book, <laughs> talk about my book. So this is in uh, the chapter called Tunnel Vision. And this is um, a bit of what it was like in the early years raising my son, Penelope. Baby tells you about her wants, her likes. She likes olives and Brussels sprouts. She likes blocks and trains. She wants more juice, please. She likes her brother's T-shirt and jeans, his sneakers and boots. She wants to sleep on his pillow, use his toothbrush, that one over there. She points at the red and blue Spider-Man brush. She makes a face when you hand over her toothbrush instead, the pink and purple one covered in silver sparkles. No, she whines, that one there. She reaches out to take the Spider-Man toothbrush out of her brother's hand. He slaps her away. She slaps back. Crying and yelling ensue. You pull them apart. All right, you two, calm down. You put baby's brush in her hand, put your hand over hers, and move it up and down together, brushing top and bottom teeth Tears still wet on her cheeks. She's not supposed to want those things, to wear what's not hers. Her brother doesn't like it. You determine that she must be confused. Mm, I love that passage. You write so beautifully. Thank what, you. What was it like for you? What did you feel? Penelope was so young and, and, and so clearly uh, feeling that 
Mm -hmm. Use a boy. And I like what you said in the beginning that I was raising my child as a girl. Mm -hmm. Penelope's always been a boy. Mm -hmm. Um, But the way I, the assumptions I made on Penelope based on body, based on what the doctor said, based on what I saw, I assumed girl. And so I was raising as such. And although we sort of intellectually know, right, that we're not to raise our children with bias, I see now the bias is still there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was assuming that Penelope was confused or Penelope was idealizing brother or Penelope was a disruptor, (laughs) troublemaker, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a rambunctious toddler. And so I kept kind of drilling down on my values and keeping a tight ship, making it tighter and tighter. I color-coordinated clothing. Penelope's were on pink hangers. (laughs) Brothers were on blue hangers. And I just kept thinking to myself, if I stick with my understanding, baby will follow. The children will follow. And that became frustrating because nothing I could do that, nothing I could do or would do was making um, the situation better. In fact, it was getting worse. And Penelope was um, more angry, more disruptive, and and really more sad. I watched Penelope bite nails into bloody, reoccurring nightmares. Mm, That was so painful for you. It was, it was painful, and I felt that um, there was still something I had forgotten to do. And I was also running myself ragged, trying to compensate, course correct. So I thought, okay, more naps. Maybe Penelope's tired. Oh, you thought there was something wrong with your approach as a parent. Absolutely. Hmm. More, more hugs, more love. I read more stories. <laughs> there was even a point when I was thinking that it was a, it was a dairy allergy. Maybe I'll just take out dairy and everything. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like all the, I was thinking, what in my mama brain Uh have I forgotten to do? Or what can I do differently to change the environment so that Penelope can respond in a happy way? Right. The answer never came when I was going down that path. Oh, you know, when I was a little girl, I... I was in love with the idea of being a tomboy. Mm-hmm. You know, first of all, I was athletic, and I, I thought maybe, you know, I should walk like a boy, I should do boy things. That's better, right? And it was mm-hmm. a whole period of my life when I felt like, I call it a tomboy, because that's how we, we identified mm-hmm. that kind of behavior back in the day. I copied my father, actually started walking like my father. And until so one day he, he, he looked at me and said, why are you walking that way? <laughs> and it was, it was shaming. Mm. It was really shaming. And, and um, when I read that passage that you wrote, I wondered, you know, you said, you wondered that, well, isn't he just confused? And, and I think that um, we do have these very rigid um, guidelines or categories that we feel like, Every child must fall within. And part of it is to help parents, right, to raise their children in a healthy, happy way. But other part of it just does not allow children to express all parts of themselves. I could not agree more. I think the language that we use is too narrow. Mm. Um, And the mindset, usually, of the parent, of the person, is also narrow. You know, we place old concepts on new babies. And so each generation is almost suffocated with an old concept. And that's when you see the, the pushback from, from young folks to old folks, against old folks, trying to, trying to establish their own 
boundaries. Penelope's boundaries were nowhere near where mine were. I was wanting Penelope to stay in the girl section. Mm-hmm. When that had become impossible, I said, okay, well, fine. We'll just let her dress like a boy. We'll just let her act like a boy. And when Penelope finally said to me, Mama, I am not a girl. I'm a boy. I said, my first answer was, well, sure. Baby, if you feel like a boy, go ahead and act like a boy. Mm -hmm. Because I still was thinking, tomboy, perhaps lesbian, Mm -hmm. perhaps revolutionary, (laughs) female. But I, I did not think boy. So I said, go ahead and act like a boy if you feel like one. And Penelope quickly corrected me and said, no, mama, I don't feel like a boy. I am a boy. And that was the first time that I realized that my understanding was limited. I didn't have the answer. I didn't know what Penelope was talking about, but I knew that I didn't know. (laughs) That was the biggest um, moment of clarity. So what did you do? I remember this day so clearly. Um, It was the summertime, just before Penelope's third birthday, and Penelope had been acting up the whole day. Copying Big Brother, like you mentioned, copying your father, knocking Big Brother's blocks over. Um, you know, pulling on everyone, pushing on everyone. And so I scooped Penelope up and took Penelope into Penelope's bedroom. And I thought, okay, both of us will take a time out. I'm exhausted. You're exhausted. And that was the first time on the floor of Penelope's bedroom where I asked the question, why are you so angry? And I think Penelope was really happy that I finally asked. And Penelope very clearly said, I'm not a girl. Everyone thinks I'm a girl and I'm a boy. And I, my first response, I said, you know, as, as, as I mentioned earlier, was to really um, assume that Penelope was talking about some sort of feeling inside of wanting to be seen as tough and equal. And so I tried to give my support, but I was incorrect. And Penelope kept pushing for clarity and, and kept insisting, I am a boy, and went down the whole, I guess, dumped everything that had been in his brain for the last two years. You know, Mama, I love you, but I don't want to be you. I want to be Papa. I want a doctor to make me a peanut, Mm. which was his word for penis. Mm -hmm. My first feeling was guilty that I was um, a negligent mom, that I had not raised a girl to be proud to be a girl. Right. I thought I had dropped the ball on feminism. Uh Right. So it's all me, me, me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I had had forgotten to do something. So I've forgotten to teach Penelope about Shirley Chisholm and Billie Jean King and Nina Simone and Audre Lorde and all of our important women. Mm -hmm. So I was feeling first guilt. Then I felt anger, angry that perhaps what was ahead of us was going to be really difficult. And then I felt primal. Primal in what way? Save Penelope. Oh. Now I'm talking about in the course of minutes. Right. Sad, Uh guilty, angry, then primal. Mm -hmm. Because after Penelope had shared everything and I saw the anger and I saw the anguish Almost consuming Penelope, I felt lots of tears, lots of (sighs) exhaustion on Penelope's part. Peace, not not peace, but coming to me in peace, coming to me with a a request to help him. Mm -hmm. And then I felt primal, save Penelope. I almost couldn't separate Penelope from myself. So not saving, not working with Penelope, not saying yes, would have been almost like rejecting myself. Right. And that lack of distinction between Penelope and myself was what carried me through the next several years Mm -hmm. and even now through my activism. So it's been some years since then, since that moment. What what has been the toughest challenge for you getting through those next, uh, it's been 
Yeah. Eight, eight nine, nine years. years Penelope's now 11. Mm-hmm. Phases, you know, I, I look at the, the, those, those years in blocks of time. The beginning phase was really difficult to just stay afloat. I was totally in the dark as a parent, did not know anything of my child's world. So it took me months and months and months to just educate myself on what transgender means. How did you, how did you do that? <laughs> the World Wide Web. I mean, did you have the word transgender in your vocabulary, in your, in your frame of reference? I can't recall being a young parent and knowing the word transgender. I did have images of gender nonconforming people. So I knew the documentary Paris is Burning. Mm-hmm. where there were teens that were gender nonconforming growing up in New York City. Many of them died. Yes. So I knew that sad story. Yes. I remember the character in Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. who was wiggling in front of the camera, the psychopath, the murderer, mm-hmm. checking his private parts. So I had these sort of images of really negative and sad and depressing and twisted. Mm-hmm. And I thought perhaps that's what we were looking at. Um, but so to get from those images to a more informed place, I had to do a lot of work on my own. The only place I knew to go to was the web. And so I just started investigating. And I remember thinking Malcolm Gladwell says 10,000 hours to become an expert. Right. So I committed myself to 10,000 hours <sighs> on my own. <laughs> on <laughs> Under top the of covers. everything else that you were doing. Late night. Yeah, late night. Mm-hmm. Um, deep dives. So that was the first phase that was really difficult, just to catch myself up to speed to find the language, to find the community, to find teachers and other people, other parents, other gender nonconforming children. Much of that I found on the, on the internet. Um, and was it negative? A combination, mm-hmm. yeah. That was also another mental process of weeding out the negativity, mm-hmm. weeding out the kooks, yes. right? Yes. Weeding out the folks that were steering you towards fixing your kid. Right, 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 because you got everything on the web. I everything. Mean, right? Yeah. And so how did you figure out how to, like, well, what's appropriate? You know, what I went is the with direction what, you want to go in? Um, mm-hmm. I went with what made me feel good. Mm-hmm. So when I was reading doctors' um, descriptions that were making me cry more, mm-hmm. eventually I stopped reading them. When I was reading um, testimonies from families or watching videos of Jazz Jennings, a young girl mm-hmm. at the time, um, and her experiences of being transgender, and that made me feel proud. I kept going in that direction. So I really was following life and the feeling of your heart, my heart. Mm-hmm. Right. I think the next, the hardest thing after that, once I wrapped my head around the fact that Penelope is good, is healthy, is joy, the hard part was getting other folks to understand that. Right. There's such a heaviness in our culture to being gender nonconforming. Most folks think. God, is this really, this is so sad. God, this is so dangerous. This is so problematic. And I'm thinking, can we just see the joy here? <laughs> can we, can I show you how fantastic Penelope and all my children are? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this idea that the concept that being non-conforming is a bad thing is a really big hurdle to get past. I, I have no time to think of my children as negatives. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of them as positives. And so that is a deliberate mental act to see your children as positives in this world. Black transgender, black genderqueer, black teens, black boys, all of which I have. Are you worried about your child's mental health? Well, the Early Childhood Mental Health Network can help. They provide specialized free mental health treatment for children up to five years old. Supportive services for families and for parents or caregivers 
access to peers who have been through similar experiences. Help is available in multiple languages. Any New Yorker can call 311 today to find the nearest early childhood therapeutic center. I see you as an artist, I mean, among your many accomplishments. Yay! <laughs> and and I, I imagine that you are surrounded by many people who are not conforming mm-hmm. in, in many ways, especially as, as, as a black woman. Um, did that help you in your journey at all? Yes, absolutely, but I didn't see it at first. So I've been raised by revolutionaries, um, by authors and writers, by thinkers. My my uncle is Gil Scott Heron. He wrote uh, many songs. One of them is the, the Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Oh yes, which is about the internal revolution, right? That's right. The internal ownership of yourself. And so this is how I was raised. Yet I never thought it applied to gender mm-hmm. in this or your way. own life. Well, I thought for myself as a black person. There is always room. You, you should never conform to the dominant society. But I didn't know that applied to gender identity. When I first realized that Penelope was transgender, I didn't go back to the teachings of revolutionaries or the teachings of artists or the teachings of folks that are creative, mentally creative. It took me a while. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I got there. Eventually, I connected the dots and, and thought, well, if black folks can be self-determined, so can young people, so can gender nonconforming people. We all are self-determined. And so I've read over and over again the works of James Baldwin, and I've listened to Gil Scott Heron, and I've thought about what my grandmother did in the South. And I apply it to this day at the kitchen table to my children in 2019. Yeah. <laughs> I had to go back. I had to really think about the creativity and the flexibility that people who came before me used to get through really tough times. Mm-hmm. So how has your journey with Penelope changed you as an individual, as a, as a mother, as a person, and, and what have you learned from Penelope? So, so it's, I, I smile every time <laughs> when I think of the growth from then to now. And it's my growth and it's the family's growth. You know, in many ways, I'm not that woman anymore that was there raising children 10 years ago. Some people want that woman back. <laughs> Maybe my ex-husband would have preferred if I stayed. But no, this woman is, is, is a different person with a different methodology. In what way? Um, I know a couple of things. One, I've learned that we are all king. Not king over other people, but king over ourselves, king over this body leader of this mind, of this heart. And so I encourage our children and myself especially, it's the hardest thing to do for yourself, to really direct yourself, right? So drop the idea of what does a good mother at 50 do? What does she look like? I forget, I try to forget that idea that there's an ideal 50-year-old responsible mom. And that has given me a lot of freedom. I travel more now. I work in different ways. I have different a different set of friends, which enriches my life. I wasn't able to do that years ago because I didn't think that that was in the realm of what a hands-on mom would do. How, how has your circle of friends grown or changed <laughs> or adapted? So our circles have mm-hmm. widened, and I think that, to me, is the goal. <laughs> how wide can we see ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Like, so widen the I in the widest sense of we, like we are. And I, I've come out of this thinking that we are trans, we are cis, we are human, 
And that's a weird concept because I think someone might say you cannot co-opt the trans experience. I'm not trans, but I also cannot separate myself from my children. So in a sense, what they are, I am and vice versa. This idea that we are, mm-hmm. we so are human. So that's why you refer to uh, yourselves as mm-hmm. a trans family. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Trans family, black family, feminist family. Mm-hmm. All, all of it. Those are my lenses. Mm-hmm. I, I really, um, at one point I saw my community as specifically and singularly the black community. I was raised to, to understand how vital it is Yes. to um, understand that all brown people have a similar oppression, therefore a similar experience. And if we unite and we see ourselves in numbers, we'll be way better off. And then when my, when my son came out as trans, I thought my, my community is not wide enough. And I had to extend that. So now it is definitely the black community and definitely the LGBTQAI community and definitely the feminist community. Mm-hmm. And if I need to widen it again, I will. <laughs> it has to, you know, the community has to keep widening to fit the urgent needs of the individual. And so I just see this life that we have now 10 years later as much wider. You know, it's interesting you say that because there are so many people when you think of the, you know, the LGBTQI community that that's that's not the black community or when you say the feminist community that that's not the black community. Do you do you have fears about um, how Penelope will navigate adolescence? Because um, Penelope's mm-hmm. now 12, right? Oh, 11. Mm-hmm. 11 or 12? It's or 11. 11. But, okay. On, <laughs> so I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I always get stuck at five kids. So I'm like, are you 11 or 12? And they have to tell me. <laughs> but yes, 11. Right? And, mm-hmm. and, and really thinking about identity in a different way than perhaps when he was two years old. Yeah. Um, and, and all of these worlds, feminist, black, feminist, trans, uh, mm. it's, it's, it can be difficult. And if you're a person yeah. of faith, it can be even more difficult. Right? So these layers, right? So, yeah. There's so many layers to our identities. Yes. And from a child's perspective, I don't think that they are thinking about intersectionality <laughs> on a day-to-day basis, right? right? It's not a word or a concept that they are um, consciously thinking of. So when I talk to Penelope and I say, hey, Pen, you're going to a new school next year. I'd love for you to go to a school that has trans folks, trans students in it. Mm-hmm. And Penelope's response was, oh, gosh, mom, why are you just even thinking that way? It's so strange that you think that way. And I get where he's coming from. He, at three, told me. He's a boy. So he doesn't quite remember his first six months or first year. He only knows himself to be living as a boy, to be treated as a boy. He fully embraces his male identity. Mm-hmm. The idea of, you know, caveating that with trans or caveating that with other these others, other things, is hard for him to con- conceptualize. So it's my job to do this. It's my job to navigate this adult world because I know that intersectionality and the layers of our identities often, always, not often, always interferes with how people see our humanity. So I have to find the right schools. I have to find the right doctors. I have to find the right communities. The job of a parent. We've done that in other forms throughout the beginning of time as a parent, navigating, right? But it's complicated. Really complicated. Don't I don't you think it's, it's more complicated. It is. It is. The, the, the good part is that there are places in their communities that are trans-friendly, that are queer-friendly. Um, there are churches that are trans-friendly and queer-friendly. And black-friendly. And black-friendly, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there are places where all of our identities can be held, mm-hmm. um, and you have to find them. If you don't, it will be a really difficult, grueling experience on the soul. 
but I've found them. I found some of these places where all of us, as the, and my family, we bring a lot to the table. So we've got um, African from Ghana, African American from the South and from the North. We've got uh, Swiss from Switzerland, Vietnamese from Vietnam, <laughs> Canadian, right? All of these within my immediate family, multiple mm-hmm. languages, multiple ways of praying, multiple identities, right. two ex-husbands, <laughs> right? Modern family. Modern family. And yet, and still, we have to do, uh, we have to, it is the job of, of, of the modern day revolutionary to find your community and, and insist on that community. Otherwise, we will get lost. Are you afraid at times for uh, Penelope, for your family, about the external world and mm-hmm. how he and, and uh, how you all will be treated? I mean, you don't have total control over Physically. everything. Yeah, you I can't th- always live within your specific community, uh, especially uh, uh, black boys mm-hmm. in this world. There's a physical fear. Yeah, yeah. I have that. I have a physical fear, um, and I find myself... Uh, I saw myself at, at a certain point when we, as a family, sort of came out, double-checking, double-locking doors, you know, making sure that the shades were pulled, making sure that the windows were locked over and over again throughout the night, mm-hmm. you know, not wanting Dad to leave us, mm-hmm. wanting us to sometimes sleep in the same room, <laughs> you right. know. So there's that physical fear. And as they get older, I have it in different ways. They get on the bus or the subway by themselves walking to the corner store. I get I, I do I have a um a fear of the their physical bodies being hurt. So I, I have this I, I fully un, I see them as really strong internally, fortified, their brain and their soul strong, knowing who they are. And resilient. But, and resilient, but the physical harm that can come to them as black boys, as black queer people, as black folks, as black young women and girls, that physical fear probably keeps me closer to them than they, than they even understand. You know, the hovering of a mother uh, is you something. You think it's made you stronger as a family? We do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, yes, absolutely. This is, this is how we survive as families, as black families, um, as nonconforming families. Yes, the strength is in the proximity to each other the care and the eye, the eye of a mom. Um, but I'll tell you, I, you know, I wish that my kids could just, when we go to the mountains, as an example, when we leave and we're in nature, all of that moves. They can, they can go miles away from me and they don't have to have me hovering. They don't have to have their community. They can be literally sitting under a tree or, or swimming liberating. in the ocean. That is liberating to mm-hmm. the soul. And, um, you know, that's, that's also privilege. Like, how often can we just divorce ourselves from the realities of this urban life? We all need it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't have an answer to, you know, how, how do we give our, our children liberation and protection at the same time? So the, the liberation I know is mental. Mm-hmm. So far, I don't know. I don't see America offering physical liberation yet to folks. That makes me mad. It makes me mad, too, yeah. and it means that we have to be so strong mm-hmm. internally mm-hmm. Uh, to navigate the world and all the stuff that gets thrown at us. Yeah. I remember feeling one year in the beginning, early stages, I, I was asking myself, what will break first, the woman, the confine, or the family? Right. So is, will the construct break, this idea of, like, gender? Could I, can I break through that, or will I break before that? 
Mm-hmm. You know, will it break me? And one year I thought, oh, I think I broke first. You know, I think I broke first. I went back down south to my mom's house and just, I think I must, I must have slept on the floor in her bed on the couch hours and hours and hours and hours. It is taxing on the body, on the mind, on the family to push back on the, the construct. And there's, like, you know, you and I just named... 10 constructs around black people, <laughs> around our children. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's a lot of pushing back. It takes a lot of energy, mm-hmm. a lot it of does. strength, a lot of persistence. Yeah. But you, you have it all. You know, I, um, there's, like, that prayer that you do throughout the day. Thank you. Thank you. Because you, you'll, you'll have a glimpse of how fantastic things are. And you can choose, you know, I, I remember in my meditations hearing something about what lens do you choose to put on? Is there a lens of... Because life, you can, you can look through lenses, lens of joy, mm-hmm. lens of caution, lens of doom. And I have to intentionally put that lens of joy on. Mm-hmm. Bring optimism to the family, right? Yes. Whenever so, you can. Yeah. Whenever you can. So well, it's been wonderful talking with you. I, th- I feel as though I could talk to you for hours and hours. And I feel the same way. Come, <laughs> o- come over for dinner. <laughs> it gets even funnier in my house for dinner. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to. Yeah. But I have one last question for mm. you, and, and that is, how do you thrive? Mm. Personally? Yes. I, in my best moments, I am running Running. I love to run in Brooklyn mm-hmm. on the streets, music with no partners. Uh, just running for like an hour sometimes. And I usually run to Drake. With your headphones <laughs> on? Yeah, with my headphones on. <laughs> um, so that's my happy place. Another thing that I absolutely love doing is dancing in the bathroom <laughs> to Why Drake. Why the bathroom? I don't know. It's just a cozy place. And mm-hmm. I do, uh, you know, all the dances that. Um, I really shouldn't be doing, but like, you know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to recreate Beyonce or whomever, <laughs> Tina Turner. And that really like brings me joy. And then, uh, you know, um, dinner with my kids mm-hmm. because it is a riot. I mean, it's a stone cold riot. We, we are so different mm-hmm. and that is undeniable. And when you bring us all to the dinner table, it just makes you laugh. <laughs> and so those are the places that I really thrive. Um, if I don't do those things, mm-hmm. my day feels incomplete. And it feels, I, I get really grumpy. Right. Yeah. I oh, and a good meal. A good meal. Of course. <laughs> spicy beef of salad. Course, a spicy beef salad. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that one day your family and my family should have dinner together. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll all bring a meal. Yes. A dish. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Tony. Thank you, First Lady. It's been wonderful. Hi, this is Shirlane McRae. Please be sure to join us for future episodes of the Thrive with Shirlane McRae podcast. We'll be talking to people and experts dedicated to helping New Yorkers thrive, and you'll hear stories about connecting people to care and about the people who are leading policy change.